Chapter Two of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The author of that lucid and powerful prose epic built around the life of Frederick of Prussia, the tenacious artist who, after long application, wove rich, varied strands of human destiny together under one single predominating theme in the fictional tapestry known as Maya. The creator of that stark tale, which is called The Wretch, and which pointed out for an entire oncoming generation, the possibility of some moral certainty beyond pure knowledge. Finally, the writer, and this sums up briefly the works of his mature period, of the impassioned treatise on art and the spirit, whose capacity for mustering facts, and, further, whose fluency in their presentation, led cautious judges to place this treatise alongside Schiller's conclusions on naive and sentimental poetry. Gustav Aschenbach, then, was the son of a higher law official, and was born in L., a leading city in the province of Silesia. His forebears had been officers, magistrates, government functionaries, men who had led severe, steady lives serving their king, their state. A deeper strain of spirituality had been manifest in them once, in the person of a preacher. The preceding generation had brought a brisker, more sensuous blood into the family through the author's mother, daughter of a bohemian bandmaster. The traces of foreignness in his features came from her. A marriage of sober, painstaking conscientiousness, with impulses of a darker, more fiery nature, had had an artist as its result and this particular artist. Since his whole nature was centered around acquiring a reputation, he showed himself, if not exactly precocious, at least, thanks to the firmness and pithiness of his personality, his accent, ripened and adjusted to the public at an early age. Almost as a schoolboy, he had made a name for himself. Within ten years he had learned to face the world through the medium of his writing-table, to discharge the obligations of his fame in a correspondence which, since many claims are pressed on the successful, the trustworthy, had to be brief as well as pleasant and to the point. At forty, wearied by the vicissitudes and the exertion of his own work, he had to manage a daily mail which bore the postmarks of countries in all parts of the world. Equally removed from the banal and the eccentric, his talents were so constituted as to gain both the confidence of the general public and the stable admiration and sympathy of the critical. Thus, even as a young man, continually devoted to the pursuit of craftsmanship, and that of no ordinary kind, he had never known the careless freedom of youth. When, around thirty-five years of age, he had been taken ill in Vienna, one sharp observer said of him in company, you see, Aschenbach has always lived like this. And the speaker contracted the fingers of his left hand into a fist. Never like this. And he let his open hand droop comfortably from the arm of his chair. That hit the mark. And the heroic, the ethical about it all, was that he was not of a strong constitution. And though he was pledged by his nature to these steady efforts, he was not really born to them. Considerations of ill-health had kept him from attending school as a boy, and had compelled him to receive instruction at home. 
he had grown up alone without comrades and he was forced to realize soon enough that he belonged to a race which often lacked not talent but that physical substructure which talent relies on for its fullest fruition a race accustomed to giving its best early and seldom extending its faculties over the years but his favorite phrase was carrying through in his novel on frederick he saw the pure apotheosis of this command which struck him as the essential concept of the virtuous in action and passion also he wished earnestly to grow old since he had always maintained that the only artistry which can be called truly great comprehensive yes even truly admirable is that which is permitted to bear fruits characteristic of each stage in human development since he must carry the responsibilities of his talent on frail shoulders and wanted to go a long way the primary requirement was discipline and fortunately discipline was his direct inheritance from his father's side by forty fifty or at an earlier age when others are still slashing about with enthusiasm and are contentedly putting off to some later date the execution of plans on a large scale he would start the day early dashing cold water over his chest and back and then with a couple of tall wax candles in silver candlesticks at the head of his manuscript he would pay out to his art in two or three eager scrupulous morning hours the strength which he had accumulated in sleep it was pardonable indeed it was a direct tribute to the effectiveness of his moral scheme that the uninitiated took his maya world and the massive epic machinery upon which the life of the hero frederick was unrolled as evidence of long breath and sustaining power while actually they had been built up layer by layer in small daily allotments through hundreds and hundreds of single inspirations and if they were so excellent in both composition and texture it was solely because their creator had held out for years under the strain of one single work with a steadiness of will and a tenacity comparable to that which conquered his native province and because finally he had turned over his most vital and valuable hours to the problem of minute revision in order that a significant work of the mind may exert immediately some broad and deep effect a secret relationship or even conformity must exist between the personal destiny of the author and the common destiny of his contemporaries people do not know why they raise a work of art to fame far from being connoisseurs they believe that they see in it hundreds of virtues which justify so much interest but the true interest for their applause is an unconscious sympathy aschenbach had once stated quite plainly in some remote place that nearly everything great which comes into being does so in spite of something in spite of sorrow or suffering poverty destitution physical weakness depravity passion or a thousand other handicaps but that was not merely an observation it was a discovery the formula of his life and reputation the key to his work and what wonder then that it was also the distinguishing moral trait the dominating gesture of his most characteristic figures years before one shrewd analyst had written of the new hero type to which this author gave preference and which kept turning up in variations of one sort or another 
he called it the conception of an intellectual and youthful masculinity which stands motionless haughty ashamed with jaw set while swords and spear-points beset the body that was beautiful and ingenious and it was exact although it may have seemed to suggest too much passivity for to be poised against fatality to meet adverse conditions gracefully is more than simple endurance it is an act of aggression a positive triumph and the figure of sebastian is the most beautiful figure if not of art as a whole at least of the art of literature looking into this fictional world one saw a delicate self-mastery by which any inner deterioration any biological decay was kept concealed from the eyes of the world a crude vicious sensuality capable of fanning its rising passions into pure flame yes even of mounting to dominance in the realm of beauty a pallid weakness which draws from the glowing depths of the soul the strength to bow whole arrogant peoples before the foot of the cross or before the feet of weakness itself a charming manner maintained in his cold strict service to form a false precarious mode of living and the keenly enervating melancholy and artifice of the born deceiver to observe such trials as this was enough to make one question whether there really was any heroism other than weakness and in any case what heroism could be more in keeping with the times gustav aschenbach was the one poet among the many workers on the verge of exhaustion all those overburdened used-up tenacious moralists of production who delicately built and destitute of means can rely for a time at least on will-power and the shrewd husbandry of the resources to secure the effects of greatness there are many such there are the heroes of the period and they all found themselves in his works here they were indeed upheld intensified applauded they were grateful to him they acclaimed him in his time he had been young and raw and misled by his age he had blundered in public he had stumbled had exposed himself both in writing and in talk he had offended against caution and tact but he had acquired the dignity which as he insisted is the innate goad and craving of every great talent in fact it could be said that his entire development had been a conscious undeviating progression away from the embarrassments of scepticism and irony and towards dignity the general masses are satisfied by vigor and tangibility of treatment rather than by any close intellectual processes but youth with its passion for absolute can be arrested only by the problematical and aschenbach had been absolute problematical as only a youth could be he had been a slave to the intellect had played havoc with knowledge had ground up his seed crops had divulged secrets had discredited talent had betrayed art yes while his modellings were entertaining the faithful votaries filling them with enthusiasm making their lives more keen this youthful artist was taking the breath away from the generation then in its twenties by his cynicisms on the questionable nature of art of artistry itself but it seems that nothing blunts the edge of a noble robust mind more quickly and more thoroughly than the sharp and bitter corrosion of knowledge and certainly the moody radicalism of the youth no matter how conscientious 
was shallow in comparison with his firm determination as an older man and a master to deny knowledge to reject it to pass it with raised head in so far as it is capable of crippling discouraging or degrading to the slightest degree our will acts feelings or even passions how else could the famous story of the wretch be understood than as an outburst of repugnance against the disreputable psychologism of the times embodied in the figure of that soft and stupid half-clown who pilfers a destiny for himself by guiding his wife from powerlessness from lasciviousness from ethical frailty into the arms of an adolescent and believes that he may through profundity commit vileness the verbal pressure with which he here cast out the outcast announced the return from every moral scepticism from all fellow-feeling with the engulfed it was the counter-move to the laxity of the sympathetic principle that to understand all is to forgive all and the thing that was here well begun even nearly completed was that miracle of reborn ingenuousness which was taken up a little later in one of the author's dialogues expressly and not without a certain discreet emphasis strange coincidences was it as a result of this rebirth this new dignity and sternness that his feeling for beauty a discriminating purity simplicity and evenness of attack which henceforth gave his productions such an obvious even such a deliberate stamp of mastery and classicism showed an almost excessive strengthening about this time but ethical resoluteness in the exclusion of science of emancipatory and restrictive knowledge does this not in turn signify a simplification a reduction morally of the world to two limited terms and thus also a strengthened capacity for the forbidden the evil the morally impossible and does not form have two aspects is it not moral and unmoral at once moral in that it is the result and expression of discipline but unmoral and even immoral in that by nature it contains an indifference to morality is calculated in fact to make morality bend beneath its proud and unencumbered sceptre be that as it may an evolution is a destiny and why should his evolution which has been upheld by the general confidence of a vast public not run through a different course from one accomplished outside the lustre and the entanglements of fame only chronic vagabondage will find it tedious and be inclined to scoff when a great talent outgrows the libertine chrysalis stage learns to seize upon and express the dignity of the mind and superimposes a formal etiquette upon a solitude which had been filled with unchastened and rigidly isolated sufferings and struggles and had brought all this to a point of power and honour among men further how much sport defiance indulgence there is in the self-formation of a talent gradually something official didactic crept into gustav aschenbach's productions his style in later life fought shy of any abruptness and boldness any subtle and unexpected contrasts he inclined towards the fixed and standardized the conventionally elegant the conservative the formal the formulated nearly and as is traditionally said of louis fourteenth with the advancing years he came to omit every common word from his vocabulary 
At about this time, it happened that the educational authorities included selected pages by him in their prescribed school readers. This was deeply sympathetic to his nature, and he did not decline when a German prince, who had just mounted to the throne, raised the author of the Frederick to nobility on the occasion of his fiftieth birthday. After a few years of unrest, a few tentative stopping places here and there, he soon chose Munich as his permanent home, and lived there in a state of middle-class respectability, such as fits in with the life of the mind in certain individual instances. The marriage which, when still young, he had contracted with a girl of an educated family, came to an end with her death after a short period of happiness. He was left with a daughter, now married. He had never had a son. Gustav von Aschenbach was somewhat below average height, dark and smooth-shaven. His head seemed a bit too large in comparison with his almost dapper figure. His hair was brushed straight back, thinning out towards the crown, but very full about the temples, and strongly marked with grey. It framed a high, ridged forehead. Gold spectacles with rimless lenses cut into the bridge of his bold, heavy nose. The mouth was big, sometimes drooping, sometimes suddenly pinched and firm. His cheeks were thin and wrinkled. His well-formed chin had a slight cleft. This head, usually bent patiently to one side, seemed to have gone through momentous experiences, and yet it was his art which had produced those effects in his face, effects which are elsewhere the result of hard and agitated living. Behind this brow, the brilliant repartee of the dialogue on war between Voltaire and the king had been born. These eyes, peering steadily and wearily from behind their glasses, had seen the bloody inferno of the lazarette in the Seven Years' War. Even as it applies to the individual, art is a heightened mode of existence. It gives deeper pleasures, it consumes more quickly. It carves into its servants' faces the marks of imaginary and spiritual adventures, and though their external activities may be as quiet as a cloister, it produces a lasting voluptuousness, over-refinement, fatigue, and curiosity of the nerves, such as can barely result from a life filled with illicit passions and enjoyments. End of chapter 2